My name is Joseph Elotu and I work for Children's Hope Chase. I've been working for Children's Hope Chase in Uganda for the last 14 years as the country director. And I'm very pleased for one of the care points that we have, which is the Kakira. Kakira is a very vulnerable community. Many times our communities get so stuck into poverty, they get so stuck into vulnerability that they may not know exactly what they want to do. For our care point in uh, Kakira, we have a 15-year development plan. And this plan is designed into five-year segments. The initial stage of taking off is when we enter a community and then we focus on the survival, addressing the nutrition of the child, addressing the education of the child, mainly addressing survival of the child. Then in the leveling phases is where we've done, uh, we begin consolidating some of the activities that we've done in the first phase. So we establish things like businesses that can be able to uh, make the community prosper. And then on the part of descending down towards the landing, that is when Hopje starts withdrawing slowly and allowing the community to take an upper hand so that we achieve sustainability of the projects that have already been established in the phase. When we launched the care point in Kakira, uh, early 2017. We were mainly doing the sponsorship model whereby we took the pictures of the children, sent them over to the church at Life Point, they would got printed, and then people would go and pick the children that they wanted to sponsor. We've developed uh, a strategy where we give the children much more voice. So we are now doing uh, a friendship model whereby we have reversed the whole process. We have families that are willing to sponsor children. They sign and then their pictures are taken. And then these pictures are taken to Uganda. We hang them and then children come and pick the person they want to sponsor them. The children look at this that I have a friend. This friend is willing to walk with me this journey. And this friend is willing to take me to, to make choices for some of the good things that are good for me. So it is a friendship, there is a relationship, and there is power in it. We want to thank LifePoint Church so much for their generosity, the generosity of the families that have come up to sponsor children, generosity of the families that have come up to sponsor the projects or give towards the projects that are being done. It's sometimes unfortunate that um, life point is so far away, just only a few people can, tra can travel there and be able to see the level of impact that this contribution is causing. But we want to thank you for the generosity. We want to thank you to respond to God's word and to respond to the needs of the people that um, we have in Kakira. May God bless you so much. May God continue richly blessing your families and may God continue ministering to each one of you even as you respond for this. Thank you for being the hands and the feet of God in what God is doing in Uganda. We talked uh, over the last couple of weeks about uh, our relationship that we're super grateful to have with uh, these folks in Kakira, Uganda. I got a chance to sit down uh, over lunch a few months ago with Joseph. He's uh, just incredible. He, they're, they're studying right now to start a pig farm there as part of uh, that enterprise. So he flew from Uganda to Bucyrus, Ohio to study a pig farm, which I just took great pleasure in. And so got a chance to talk with them. But as we've talked over the last couple of weeks, right, shifting a little bit, we right now, 
as a church come alongside and partner with uh, 200 of these, of these kiddos in this community. There's this community-to-community relationship, and we're looking across campuses for 100 other folks to step forward and to partner uh, with one of these kiddos. It's $45 a month to be a part of that. Uh, we just sent a team there. They just got back. Wonderful experience and time there uh, with this community. But today, uh, when we're done here, as you walk out, if you just look to your right in the lobby, there's the uh, map of the world. We'll have some folks there with iPads. If you want to take that step today and you would say, hey, I'm interested in being a partner to one of these kids and you could do that, go out and just turn to your right, find someone there with the iPad and let them help you uh, take a step. Again, we're looking for 100 folks across all campuses uh, to to take that step uh, today. Second thing I want to mention to you, uh, hopefully you got one of these when you came in or if you don't, they're out at Guest Central as well. These are our Life Group catalogs. So if you've been part of LifePoint for any time, you know uh, how important Life Groups are to us. We gather on Sunday mornings and then we gather in smaller fashion in our groups throughout uh, the week. So this catalog has all of our uh, groups listed out, all of our bridge groups. Bridge groups are groups that meet for a shorter period of time around a specific content kind of focus. Uh, Our life groups, our middle school groups, high school groups, 18 to 25 groups, all listed out by campus right here. And as you, if you're new or you've been here for a while and you haven't jumped into a life group yet, I know, I know that can be nerve-wracking. I know that sometimes there's these questions of like, man, am I going to have to open up my life to other people? And and here's what I would say. Um, Yes, right? You can do that a little bit in your own timing, but but getting into someone else's home and having them maybe come into your home, that is uncomfortable. But one of my favorite stories, I've told you this story before, one of my favorite stories from Life Group is a young couple that came to our church and they looking to get into a group and and, uh, the wife couldn't, her husband couldn't make it that night. So she had to go for the first time alone to our group. She brought her little kiddos with us. She got both kids sitting on her lap because they're brand new and she didn't want to put them in wildlife yet. That's what we call watching the kiddos appropriately named wildlife. And so uh, she's sitting there and as we're sitting on the floor, all of a sudden there's this puddle forming around her as her two-year-old is just peeing everywhere, right? And, and the puddle begins to grow and of course she's mortified, right? And our group just handled it like champs, right? It's like, man, yeah, we've all got small children and we've been there. Let's clean it up and let's move on today. Uh, that couple, they're life group leaders here, right? and forming relationships and providing environments for others. So bottom line, authentic community, which is one of our core values here, really only comes through vulnerability, through being a little bit vulnerable, through opening yourself up to others and allowing them to step into your life and you stepping into theirs. Nothing else, sometimes your kid needs to pee on someone else's floor before you can become really good friends, right? Once you've done that, you're pretty much there. All right, <clears throat> we've, uh, we've been in this series that we've been in, in Revelation uh, for a number of weeks now. Uh, the big idea of the series is this, that Revelation is more about present hope than a future calendar, right? That Revelation is more about present hope than a future calendar. Uh, we've said that each week, Revelation is what's called an apocalypse, right? It uses vivid apocalyptic uh, Apocalyptic literature uses vivid imagery to sort of capture our imagination. It's not really teaching us a bunch of new information. Pretty much everything in Revelation you can find elsewhere already in the Bible. But Revelation uses imagery that's very different, that's very arresting. It captures us to try to, to, try to teach us and, uh, these things that we know, but to drive it into our souls in sort of a new way. But because of that apocalyptic nature, 
things get pretty wild at times and the symbols and the images and people try to figure out what exactly does that correspond to with some pretty wild results at times, which is why I think we need to remember as we study through Revelation, what I've tried to keep us focused on is, guys, this is also a letter. It's written from the Apostle John to the churches and and Jesus didn't give this revelation, this series of visions to John to confuse him or to confuse us, to give us a way to calculate the day of Jesus' return. In fact, the Bible flat out tells us don't do that, right? We don't know the day or hour of his return, but really to encourage us, to comfort us as we've said and to confront us. It comforts us with the knowledge. When you look at Revelation, big picture, you see, man, Jesus wins. He has won through his death on the cross and he will win when he comes back, returns, and creates all things new and puts an end to evil forever. We know where this is headed. That's meant to be a comfort to us. And at the same time, it confronts us. And we've said that pretty much every week, that it confronts us with this question of, look, if there's the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness, and the kingdom of light is going to win, and the kingdom of darkness will be put away forever, we need to ask ourselves, well, who am I living for? What am I living for? Am I living for the things of this world? Or am I living for Christ? Am I keeping my eyes fixed and fixated on him? Now, today we head into Revelation 6. And as one pastor and author I was reading this week said, he said, now we come to the part where most pastors stop preaching revelation. (laughs) Uh, Or I would imagine maybe they just skip to the end where Jesus makes all things new. And the reason he said that was you go one through five and you've got the letters to the churches and you've got this incredible vision of Jesus. And then we've looked the last two weeks. I mean, I hope you've enjoyed Revelation four and five. They're looking at the throne room and the throne, the one who sits on the throne and Revelation five, the lamb, the lion of the tribe of Judah that was also the lamb that was slain and just getting these incredible images of who Jesus is. But then you get to Revelation six and things begin to change. I understand why he says that interpretation gets even harder and more varied. The images become more wild. Scenes, as you move through the chapters into eight, we're not gonna cover everything, right, in the next chapters. I'm gonna reference eight and nine today and 15 and 16, but that's because scenes get repeated. From what I can tell, you get similar visions teaching us, I think, the same thing. And it gets hard. It's not chronological, from what I can tell. It's difficult sometimes to understand and maybe more than anything why it gets so uncomfortable is because there's a fair bit about the wrath of God against evil and the sin of mankind. And so it just gets flat out uncomfortable. So with that as an introduction, let's read chapter six. And I'm, I'm gonna warn you, it can, be, it can be hard to hear. The images are arresting and, and heartbreaking in some ways, but look at Revelation six verse one. John says, now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals. Let me remind us from last week, right? We said that there was this one on the throne, the father holding this scroll. We said the scroll represented God's purposes for history, but no one was worthy to open the scroll. So he says, right, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb that was slain, Jesus is worthy. The lamb is worthy to go and open the scroll because of what he's done in history, because of his blood shed on the cross for you and for me. So he goes and he takes the scroll and he begins to break the seals. It's got seven seals on it. And as he breaks those seals, this is the imagery, some things begin to happen. Things begin to move in the world. And it says, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. And I looked and behold a white horse. 
This is one of four horses that are often called the four horses, or the four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? And I looked and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer represents, right, mankind's desire for war and conquest. It says, when he opened the second seal, I heard the living, second living creature say, come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword, representing death, or the death that comes rather from war and conquest. When he opened the third seal, I heard the living creature say, come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. Those prices would indicate this horse, most commentators say, represents famine, right? Famine on the earth. And then verse seven, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And this horse in some ways represents the summary of the first three horses. And I looked and behold a pale horse and its rider's name was death and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth. Now, this big, big picture, something to remember, right? As these judgments come and as this suffering comes, and I know this is hard, but in some ways it's encouraging. This doesn't happen outside of the control of the Almighty. These are all issuing from the throne. They're given authority. They're permitted to do this. It doesn't happen outside of God's authority, but under God's authority. And it's limited, as we'll talk about. They were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Now, many commentators point out, as you look at this, um, these four horsemen of the apocalypse, these judgments, this suffering that comes into the world, um, there are different forms of God's judgment, right? Where God, here in a moment, we're gonna see God comes and there's a, there's a finality to it at the sixth seal. Here, in some ways, it's God just taking his hand of restraint off, right? The, four, the horseman is allowed to take peace from the earth. Conquest, uh, the Lord, I don't know, that has to incite us towards conquest and war towards each other. That's part of the human heart. That's part of our sinfulness and brokenness, our desire. So one form of God's judgment is simply taking his hand of restraint off of the creation and all the suffering that happens as a result of that. It's a fearful thing when God takes his hand of restraint off, and at least in part, that's what's happening here. Verse nine then says this, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. So these are martyrs crying out. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Remember the context here, right? We've said by some estimates, 40,000 Christians were killed during this time under the reign of the emperor because they would not worship the emperor as Lord and God. And so you've got the saints crying out, right, who've been murdered for their faith. Lord, when? And then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Two things I want to pause there and point out. One, I think it's worth us asking the question, are believers kept safe from all of the suffering that happens in the world? Right, as the four horsemen go out, and we see suffering and we see death and we see famine and we see conflict and we see conquest and we see war. Our believers kept completely secure from that. 
Spiritually, yes. Physically, no. Believers, we see this here in Scripture. We see it throughout history. Believers are killed. Believers suffer. And Jesus said this would happen, right? I want to read to you John 16, 33. Jesus said, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. I was reading this last night, just going over my notes again, and I just was caught by a couple of things. One, where do we find our peace? Where does Jesus say we find our peace? In our circumstances? No, he says, in me. So that in me you might have peace. And I don't know about you, but I, I need to be regularly reminded of that. Uh, when, I get, um, when I get stressed and I get angry and I get fearful, when I'm overwhelmed, I, I, <laughs> my heart strays. I don't know about you, but right, instead of knowing, I know it up here, like peace is found in Christ. But in here, I begin to look, I look to Morgan, I look to the kids, uh, I look to the phone, right? Maybe I can just entertain myself and find some peace there. I look to other things. And as I was reading this last night, it was just like the Lord was reminding me, Kale, in this world, you're going to have tribulation. In this world, there's suffering. In this world, there's hardship. And you're not exempt from that. And we're not exempt from that. But there's peace. There's a source of peace for you and me that is everlasting and true. And that's Christ himself. And we need to be reminded of it regularly. We need to preach that to our own hearts and say, Lord, I gotta look back to you. Second thing that I noticed is Jesus said, take heart. I have overcome the world. That word overcome, it's the same word that we saw last week. When the elder looks at John and he says, hey, don't weep anymore. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah who has conquered. It's the same word, who has overcome, that Jesus has conquered. He has won, but he's done that. If you remember from last week, it says, how did he, how did he conquer? By his blood being shed on the cross. Jesus conquered through suffering. And if we're going to be his followers, we too will conquer through suffering. Not only will we conquer in the end, but on the way to victory, through suffering, God is shaping you and I into the image of his son. It is one of the most mind-boggling aspects to me of God's sovereignty in our lives is that as we experience, <laughs> one author said, we can hear the, horse, the hoofbeats of the horsemen in our world. As we experience the suffering, as we look around at the world around us, as we experience suffering in our own life, we're not exempt from it. As we experience the brokenness of sin and God's anger against it, God is simultaneously using all of that, even as he is authorizing that and allowing it and bringing it in, he's using it to shape you and I into the image of his son. He's using every bit of suffering and hardship in your life to shape you. If you have God as your father through a relationship with Jesus Christ, the son, then his Holy Spirit lives inside of you and God is using every ounce of your experience in this life, as hard as it may be sometimes, to shape you and to grow you and to transform you into the image of Jesus. Through suffering, we've, we conquer as well. One pastor puts it, he says, not everything in our lives is father filtered. It's filtered through our heavenly father. Everything that comes into your life, even your death, filtered by the father, filtered first through the loving plan 
of your heavenly father to transform you into the image of his son. Second thing I want to point out is this. If you notice, it said that the, the saints are crying out for justice. They're saying, Lord, how long? And he says, I want you to wait for a while, but here in a moment, we're going to see that the justice comes. So second thing I want to point out is that God moves in response. He moves in justice in response to the prayers of his saints. He tells them again here to wait, but they continue right praying and eventually the justice does come. And it's something multiple commentators pointed out. And honestly, it's just a stunning thought that God is a just God. He will act justly. And yet somehow there's a connection between him moving in justice and our pleas for that justice. God, we want to see your kingdom come. God, we want to see justice on the earth. That's a stunning thought. <laughs> Uh, I was thinking about this in the scope of history. So May 8th, 1945. Anyone want to guess that day, May 8th, 1945? Germany surrenders, right? Some of you know. Germany surrendered, effectively ending World War II, at least on the European front. And historians will tell you, right, uh, that day is so significant. That happened because of the Allied powers, right? Because of the soldiers who fought, uh, relentlessly putting pressure on the German army from multiple fronts. And from one perspective, that is absolutely true. And yet much of the point of the book of Revelation is we can't really see what's going on in the world unless we put on spiritual glasses and we see what is God doing, what's going on behind the scenes. And so from one perspective, yes, totally true, right? Allied powers and the soldiers and their efforts, praise God. And at the same time, you wonder, okay, how many Christians, how many believers behind the scenes were crying out for justice to the Lord? crying out, Lord, will you bring an end to this conflict? And in his time, God moves and moved in response to those prayers to bring an end to the conflict. My point is this, if God moves in response to the prayers of his people, it should encourage us and challenge us, I think, to pray big <laughs> and to move beyond, just in my own life, right? Move beyond my own life, my own family. Should you pray for you? Yes. Should you pray for your family? Yes. But, but we've got to move beyond just the Lord, you know, keep us safe and moving into, wait a second, our prayers move the heart of the God of the universe. <laughs> so let's pray for his kingdom to come. Let's pray for mercy. Let's pray for justice. Let's pray for God and his kingdom to come in our world. Pray, pray big. Verse 12 says this, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Now I'm gonna pause there for a moment just to note, like if you're reading this at this point in time, so we're getting into like, like end time, end time here. And, and if you read this and go, man, that's scary. Like the sky rolled up like a sky. And, and it says the rich and the powerful and all the powerful ones on the earth, they can't do anything about it. And that's something just to note, right? When God says, time's up, there's nothing that you or me or any human institution, no power in the universe can do anything about it when God says, hey, time's up. And if you go, man, that's scary. In some ways it should be. <laughs> We're not to read this and try to just 
intellectualize it away and say, well, let's just try. It is meant to confront us. One of our pastors last week said, you know, when you look in Revelation, you see really like two teams, team lamb and team dragon, right? Dragon being Satan, lamb being Christ. And he says, really, it should confront us with this question of, Lord, which team, am, like, which team am I playing for? Which team am I on? Who am I living for? Am I living, as we said at the beginning, am I living for the things of this world or am I living for the Lord? Because when time's up, we have to stand before him. And if it confronts you and you're like, man, this is kind of scary, it should cause us to take a hard look at our lives and say, man, what is my relationship to the God of the universe? It says that they're amongst the caves and the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? I wish we had more time this morning we, to jump into Revelation 7 because it answers that question, who can stand? Like against the wrath of God, against sin, who can stand? Revelation 7 powerfully answers that question. I encourage you to read it. The answer is everybody who has been sealed by the blood of the Lamb, everybody who has come under the grace and mercy of Jesus gets to stand forgiven and free. Everyone who belongs to Christ, that's who can stand. And that offer is open to anyone, even today, to turn from your sin and trust Jesus with your life. But first, we gotta deal with Revelation 6. And we need to talk a little bit more about the wrath of God. And that's not overly comfortable, right? When we'd say, let's first define it, right? His just anger against sin. And part of the reason I say I feel like we need to deal with it is because it's not just Revelation 6 that we see it, it's Revelation 8 and 9. So at the seventh seal breaking, out come seven trumpets. And there's seven trumpets, and there's the wrath of God again. And at the seventh trumpet blow, then comes bowls of wrath in chapters 15 and 16. And we see more of the wrath of God against evil and against the sin of mankind. And each time it gets more intense. The scene is sort of repeated, but it gets more intense until finally comes the end, the forever and final defeat of evil forever. Now, here's what I wanna do. I wanna ask a question. I wanna make a number of comments under that, few comments, two, two major points after that, and then we'll be finished. So here's the question I want us to wrestle with this morning. Why is God so angry at sin? Why the great day of the wrath of the Lamb? Why is God angry at evil and sin? So there are four things I wanna say about this, okay? One, this is key. Let's remember the difference between our anger and God's anger, okay? We have, because usually when we see why is God angry, we're like, angry? And we start thinking about our anger, okay? Our anger is often unrighteous and unjust. It's often impatient and petulant, sometimes even vengeful, right? Sometimes it doesn't even make sense. We don't even know why we're angry. Right now, Morgan and I are changing our, our, we're going through some dietary changes right now. So I'm in that withdrawal phase of sugar. I'm angry, right? <clears throat> like, if you come to me later and you're like, hey, and I'm like, leave me alone, right? Just don't take that personally. That's just the way I feel right now. Right? There's a little bit of that. Like, I'm just, the fuse is about this short, right? Sugar withdrawal, that's just, that's just where we are. And to be honest, I've had to apologize to my kids multiple times this week, right? Hey, I'm sorry. Daddy shouldn't have gotten that angry, right? He's just not feeling great. Sometimes our anger, it's unjust. 
It's unrighteous, whether dietary related or not, right? Sometimes we get angry and we shouldn't. So the scriptures say, hey, get angry, but don't sin. Sometimes our anger is impatient, it's vengeful, it's I want revenge. God's anger is never like that. God's anger is a righteous reaction to moral evil. It's a righteous reaction to moral evil. And actually, it's, his, it's part of his love and action, which I'll talk about here in a moment. Our anger, misguided, self-centered, not so with God. When he's moved to anger, it's a righteous and good anger that's directed toward wrongdoing. Second thing I'll say under this, right? Why is God so angry at sin? Because sin is really serious. And I don't think we usually think that way. So I, I see it in myself sometimes, and I hear people say it all the time. We minimize sin. We use phrases like, well, nobody's perfect. And so we talk about sin primarily as like, I made a mistake, and not primarily the way the Bible talks about it, and that is open rebellion against the God of the universe. So there's a gravity and a horror to sin and unless we fully appreciate that, we don't like talking about it, it's really uncomfortable, I get it. But unless we appreciate and understand the gravity of sin, we can't appreciate the gravity of the cross. If we cheapen sin, then we cheapen the cross. If we understand the horror of sin, then we understand the beauty and the weight of what Jesus has done for us at the cross when he paid for it once and for all with his own blood. We tend to talk about, again, sin in very minimizing ways, yeah, I shouldn't have done that, made a mistake. But when we look at sin in the scriptures, sin at its core is humanity's rebellion against its creator. It's an assault on his sovereignty, on his goodness, and on his creatorship. I don't think that's a word, I made that up, but creatorship, right? He literally gave us life, and then if we're honest with ourselves, think about your life with, with our thoughts, with our words, with our behaviors, and with our heart attitudes. We collectively have spit in his, fight, spit in his face and told him, we don't need you. <laughs> I'll take your stuff, but I don't want you. And we worship the creation rather than the creator, and we kind of collectively say to him, right, thank you, but no thanks. And when you think of it that way, and you say, hey, this is more than just sometimes I say something I shouldn't or I do something that I... But it's, no, there's this heart attitude in me that is running from God rather than toward God. There's this heart disposition in me that wants God's stuff, but not God himself, that says, I'd rather my own way, my will be done, not thy will be done. Suddenly we understand a little bit more the gravity and the horror of sin, that God gives us life and we say, we don't, we don't want you. So sin is serious, God hates it, and yet, loves us. And that's number three, right? So why is God so angry at sin? Love and righteous anger go together. Love and righteous anger go together. Let me try to explain. God loves the earth he created, and he loves the people he created. But as the people he created try to assert our own authority over the world he created, and we misuse it, we abuse it, we worship it, we destroy it, and most terribly, we oppress and we abuse and we enslave and we hurt one another, <laughs> the people in it. That angers the God who created us. When you see people you love hurting themselves and hurting others, it angers you. <laughs> and a good God, as he sees the people he created hurting one another, bringing evil into the world, 
worshiping the dragon rather than the limb. It angers him. He doesn't just look at all the evil in the world and shrug his cosmic shoulders and say, eh, no big deal. <laughs> and ultimately, we don't want him to. We do want a God who cares about and punishes sin. The, the reality is oftentimes we just say, well, I just don't want him to punish my sin. But we'll talk about that here in a moment. Four, I think it's easy for us to read this and say, doesn't that just seem kind of extreme? Like God punishing mankind for their sinfulness, the saints crying out for justice and vent. Like, what's up with that? <laughs> is this really necessary? And I was thinking about that this week. If I'm honest, guys, I feel that way sometimes. I read this and think, gosh, that seems harsh. But I think the reality is we have to recognize how culturally conditioned we are. We, guys, we, we live, most of us live very insulated lives, right? And we're exposed to evil. We see it on the news, but, but a lot of us don't come face to face with it on a daily basis. You talk to law enforcement folks who have to be faced experientially with the evil of the world, the worst of humanity, sometimes they have a different view on justice than what we do. The reality is most of us simply don't experience the intensity of evil and suffering in a way that many people around the world do, in a way that many people throughout history have done, and we live, our, we live a fair bit of our lives inside of air-conditioned, temperature-controlled homes and cars, and we've got every pleasure and source of leisure right at our fingertips, and, and we live in a lot of comfort. And from that place of comfort, when we talk about like punishment and justice and judgment, we go, gosh, that makes me uncomfortable. Is that really necessary? But let's be honest, I wonder if you interviewed a family or an individual from Ukraine right now who's had their home obliterated and family members killed, if they would feel differently about that, about the concept of justice. I mentioned World War II earlier. So after World War II, there was this, these trials called the Nuremberg Trials. And for four years, the Allied powers systematically right, sat down in Germany and prosecuted Nazi war criminals. In the first year, they executed many of them. And when you read it, right, it's almost shocking. You're like, gosh, that seems harsh. But when you dive in and you dig in and you say, wait a second, these people went through, these people were responsible for the mass murder of millions of men, women, and children. And the people who experienced it and came face to face with it, who saw the images, their view on justice may be a little different than than ours. My point is, I think for most of us, our emotions and our thought process toward the concept of wrath and judgment is far more culturally conditioned than we probably want to admit. We live in a culture where it's, it's comfortable, and so sometimes talking about these things, about justice, it just feels uncomfortable to us. Second thing, right? Next point. God's judgment is actually a call to repentance, okay? God's judgment, as we think about the wrath of God it, against sin, it's actually a bit of a wake-up call. So I want you to notice something. The four horsemen who come into the world, like it's terrifying as you read it, but it's not total. It's not yet final. There's a progression here. The fourth rider is given authority over a fourth of the earth, not the entire earth. And I don't think the point there is to calculate that out exactly to 25%. I think the point there is to recognize there's being time given for people to repent, okay? So in the second series of God's wrath, it's trumpet sounds. 
What were trumpets used for, right? Some of us are like playing music, right? Not so much. In ancient times, trumpets used to warn people. <laughs> you blew the trumpet and the point was, guys, an army's coming. You need to change your ways. Go inside, hide, do something, repent, right? Get ready. The point was warning. And so as we look at these, the wrath of God, as we look at God's judgment against sin, the point is for us to understand, hey, turn around and repent. Get yourself right with the Lord. In fact, let me read to you, Ezekiel 18, 23. God says this through the prophet Ezekiel. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? I don't want you to perish. He's like, turn. Get your heart right. Get your life right. Square with Jesus. 2 Peter 3, 9, the apostle Peter says it this way, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. C.S. Lewis said it this way, one of his most often quoted moments. He says, we can ignore pleasure, but pain <laughs> insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So part of like the, the horseman, part of the conquest and the war, you say, what, God, what are you doing with all this? What are you doing in your anger against sin? What are you doing in allowing suffering or bringing suffering into the world? Part of what he's doing is sending a wake-up call to say, hey, look, look at the world around you. Look at your own heart. Are you right with Jesus? Daryl Johnson, I've quoted him a number of times in his book, Discipleship on the Edge. He says that it's almost like this. We look around us, we see everything going wrong. The wars, the murder, the sex trafficking, the corruption, the lies, the abuse, and nature itself seeming to go haywire. And he said, it's almost as if the creator is shouting to us, this is not the way it should be. You're going the wrong way. <laughs> Turn around, humble yourself, and repent. And so if I can, I just want to press in on some of us this morning. I, guys, I know this is uncomfortable, but particularly for those of us who are here today, and you maybe would say, I don't know if I'm a Christian, I don't know if God exists, or maybe you're here and you say, I believe those things. I just really struggle with the idea of the wrath of God against sin, that he's angry at sin. I get it. I really do. And I would say this to us, to myself and to us, whether we like that concept or not is not as important as whether it's true or not. If the Bible is true, if God is who he says he is, and if Jesus really came, died on the cross, and rose again for our sin, then the wrath of God against sin, God's judgment against sin, it's a reality, it's a truth. And whether we like it or not has no bearing on its trueness. And really what's called of us is not to say, well, are you gonna like that or not? What's called of us is, how are we gonna respond to that? If one day the curtain's gonna close, and if one day God is gonna root out every, every source of evil, and he's gonna punish every sin, and he's gonna make the world new, the question we should be asking ourselves is, hey, what's my relationship to the creator of the universe? And most importantly, have I come under the mercy and the grace offered to me by his son? And that's where I wanna close this out this morning. The final thing, right, as we talk about judgment, never, ever, ever miss this point. It is fundamental to understanding the gospel that Jesus 
took the judgment in our place. You look at Revelation, and, and again, there's a scariness to it. There's a heaviness to it. You go, man, God seems really angry at wrongdoing and sin, and yes, he is. But also, he loved us enough that he sent Jesus in our place. And there's a great song that summarizes it well. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, and every sin on him was laid. So here in the death of Christ, I live. At the cross, Jesus took all of that suffering, all of that pain, and all of God's righteous anger against moral evil, and he absorbed it in his own body for you and for me. You look through Revelation, you see signs of God's judgment against sin, against evil, against the enemy, against our brokenness. And it's peals of lightning and silence and darkness and earthquake and thunder. When you go to the cross, what do you see happening? Silence. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Darkness over the face of the land. An earthquake that splits the rocks and the tombs. Signs of God's judgment. But it's not God's judgment falling on us. Not falling on you or me. Falling on his own son. You say, why? (laughs) Jesus did nothing wrong. Exactly. He lived the perfect life that you should have lived and that I should have lived but couldn't. And then he went to the cross and he died the death that we deserved in our place, in love, saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Pay me instead of them. So every single one of us has a choice today. I told you at the beginning, right? Revelation isn't, the challenge is not so much in trying to understand every symbol and image. The challenge is looking at our own lives and saying, Lord, what is my response to this? And we have a choice today, every single one of us, when we look at God's justice, we can continue shaking our fist at our creator and saying, no, I'm gonna live my way and I don't like the idea that I'm accountable to you or anyone else. Or we can humble ourselves and we can come underneath the blood of the lamb and we can be forgiven and set free and have a right relationship with God and be able to say, come Lord quickly, come Jesus, come quickly. And then we can share that message of hope and that message of grace with those around us. Let me pray for us. Father, I know that this morning uh, is heavy, and Father, I I hope appropriately so. Um, We should not look at the world around us. We should not look at suffering, and we should not look at your justice against sin and revel in the demise of others, Father. We look at our own lives and say, if it weren't for the grace of Jesus, where would I be? Father, will you give us a genuine love for those around us who are still walking in opposition to you? Father, will you give us a motivation to reach people, to share Christ with them, and to say, humble yourself. Don't keep running away from God because there's gonna come a time when time is up. Father, help us to do a deep dive and examination of our own hearts to say, Lord, we wanna live for you. We want to align our lives with you. 
And then Father, I pray that perhaps more than anything out of this morning, there would be a deep sense of gratitude in each one of our hearts, knowing that Jesus took this in our place. That every wrong we have done, every sin we've committed, every thought, every attitude, every disposition, every time, Father, that we have failed, Jesus, you took that upon yourself and you paid for it once and for all by your blood at the cross. And for every person here who has accepted you and who has come underneath your grace, I pray that today there would be a deep sense of gratitude that embeds itself in our hearts. And then I pray for anyone here, and if this is you, we're just gonna continue to pray for a moment. For those of us who know Jesus, I want you to just take a moment and reflect. Pray, speak to God and let him speak to you. And for anyone here that you would say, man, I'm still living my life in opposition to the lamb. Maybe today is the day or maybe for the first time you understand the way that God loves you and what it is, the weight of what Christ did for you at the cross. Can I plead with you? Don't keep running. Don't keep shaking your fist at the creator. Humble yourself and receive the mercy that he offers you through Jesus. You pray with me, you pray in your own words. Father, today I'm done running. Father, today I am done shouting, my will be done. And I begin saying, thy will be done. And Jesus, I accept you as Lord and Savior. I ask for the forgiveness of my sin. And from this day forward, I trust you with my life. Thank you for rescuing and redeeming me. Lord, we praise you and we love you. And we thank you for who you are. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.